we're probably going to run trillion dollar deficit this year in a time when the economy is supposed to be growing. So that, that gives you an indication of where we are with Republican limited government. And I started reading and reading and reading and no person has a right to initiate aggression against another person. We want to live in a world of more liberty, which is less aggression. The momentum of the desires of individuals overpowers the will of the government. People have to be willing to do the thing that the government doesn't want them to do. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, Episode 49. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello, folks. Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. A few things first. Head over to my podcasts page, culinarylibertarian.com slash podcasts, and there you can follow me on a whole variety of social media, Twitter and Gab and Minds, as well as on Facebook, and join my Eating Liberty Facebook group. We're in there, we're chatting about bread baking or policy or cottage food industry. Lots of interesting things happening, and you can be a part of that. While you are on the podcast page, you can support the show with a donation through PayPal or Bitcoin or Patreon, as well as make a purchase of a coffee mug from my Crinky Without Coffee mug store and pick up a free copy of my Muffins e-cookbook, Foolproof Muffins, recipes that work every time. Just click the link, share your email address, and download the book. And for that trade, I'll send you a few emails a week. There are two more ways you can support the show, both with a few clicks of the mouse. Share the episodes from the show notes page to your social media accounts, and visit your favorite podcatcher and give the show a five-star review and type a few kind words. Those actions alert the algorithms that people are engaging with the show, and that helps more people find it. Folks, the school year has started in some places and is about to in the rest of the places. If the idea of correcting the errors of your kids' teachers is more than you can take, and you have seriously considered homeschooling, check out the Ron Paul curriculum through my affiliate link, culinarylibertarian.com slash homeschool. Parents have no textbooks to buy, no lesson plans to write, and no struggles with the emotional burnout of other homeschooling programs. Instead, your student will use primary sources, video-based curriculum, and review, review, review. And even though the lessons are supported with video, there's more than enough writing to train your kids about how to be an effective writer. With courses in personal finance and two years of Western civilization, your kids will be well ahead of their state school contemporaries. CulinaryLibertarian.com slash homeschool to see the courses and learn more about the Ron Paul curriculum. My guest today is Mike Meharry. Mike serves as the National Communications Director for the Tenth Amendment Center and is the managing editor 
of the Shift Gold blog. He speaks on his own podcast, Thoughts from Meharry Head, as well as on the Friday Gold Rep podcast and It's Your Dime interview series for Shift Gold, and also speaks on Godarchy. Mike is the author of three books, Our Last Hope, Rediscovering the Loth Path to Liberty, Smashing Myths, Understanding Madison's Notes on Nullification, and Nullification Objections, Dismantling the Opposition. Since he's clearly a layabout, he's also written several ebooks, including The Power of No. Hello, Mike. Thank you for joining me today on the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. Always a pleasure. Appreciate you having me on. Well, it is my pleasure as well. So uh, we're going to talk about something that sort of came up as an interesting, almost uh, throwaway comment of mine when we were chatting about something. It was about food, food rights and cottage rights, and I made the, the quip of part-time libertarians. I thought, you know, that's actually kind of an interesting idea. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. But before we do, uh, give us a little bit of your background. And I, I think I'm right, you were not always libertarian. So what were you and how did you come to be this? All right. Well, I guess the 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 reason that I have uh, anybody cares what I have to say is that I'm the National Communications Director at the Tenth Amendment Center. I don't know if that uh, gives me any credibility or not, but be that it is it may, that is, that is uh, what I do. Um, and actually, that was kind of my foot into the door into libertarianism. Uh, I kind of got caught up in the Tea Party movement back in the uh, Obama days as a, uh, basically, I guess, a neocon. I, I didn't know what a neocon was, but in retrospect, that's pretty much what I was. I was the uh, you kind of run-of-the-mill conservative, uh, you know, I I believed in small government, at least theoretically, but I love the wars and I love the foreign policy uh, of the uh, the Bush administration. And uh, well, I mean, it's not just the Bush administration, obviously, but you know, I was I was a war guy, and uh, but I got caught up in the Tea Party movement. Ended up getting involved with the Tenth Amendment Center uh, because you know they do the Tenth Amendment, which is the limited government thing, and. Took me about maybe three weeks working with the Tenth Amendment Center to realize that most of what Republicans say about limited government's a bunch of BS. Um, you know, they're they're as big government as anybody, and we've definitely gotten a taste of that during the Trump administration with the Republicans controlling both houses of Congress. Uh, you know, we have uh, we're probably going to run trillion dollar deficit this year. Uh, in a time when the economy is supposed to be growing, so that, that gives you an indication of where we are with Republican limited government. But anyway, uh, as I got involved with the Tenth Amendment Center, it kind of uh, exposed me to folks like Tom Woods and uh, Mises Institute, and I started reading and reading and reading and and kind of evolved into what I am now, which is basically, I, I guess, I hate the term anarcho-capitalist because nobody knows what that means. I like the term voluntarist better. Nobody knows what that means either. So. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, but uh, you know, basically, I believe that uh, society should be organized through voluntary associations, and that we shouldn't be initiating force uh, through a political system in order to uh, lord our will over other people. So that's that's kind of it in a nutshell. 
Well, that's a good nutshell. I think the term voluntary or voluntarist at least sounds intuitive. Yeah. So you could sort of grasp what that means, whereas and I've had comments and conversations with other people, the word anarchy, even if you know what it means, it sounds scary. Right. And then so many times it is misused. Now, whether or not that's Intentional or unintentional is another conversation, but it's used to mean chaos, which right. is chaos is disorder. Right. But anarchy is not disorder, but that's not the focus of this conversation. But I understand where you're coming from that. How do I, if, if I'm not Republican or Democrat, what am I? And how do I say something that people understand? Yeah. And that's, that's another problem. I mean, you know, interestingly, I think that any. All of these political terms are are nebulous to some degree. I mean, what's a Republican? You know, I, I hear Republicans all the time talking about rhinos. You know, the Republicans in name only, but it seems to me that that's pretty much what the Republican Party is. So, uh, you know, well, what's a liberal? What's a conservative? Uh, I think, you know, there there are some kind of parameters around these words and these terms, but it is really hard. And, and I think some in some ways it's a little bit cumbersome to try to to tag people with with these various political labels. I find it amusing because, you know, through my work and, and uh, I have a, a little side project that I do called Godarchy, which is uh, kind of Christian anarchism or Christian voluntarism. And uh, I'll post memes and stuff on the Facebook page and, and alternately get called a right winger and a, and a left winger and, you know, a liberal. And, <laughs> at the same time. Yeah. At the same time. And sometimes even on the same post, because people look at the, look at things through their, through their own political prism. But I don't know. It's weird. It's a weird thing when you start trying to label things. It, well, it is a weird thing, and and it the lines move, the definitions change, and so then we get into funny quips of like Michael Malice: conservatives are progressives driving the speed limit. <laughs> but you know the 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 good question always is. What exactly is it that conservatives are trying to conserve? Mm -hmm. And the only reasonable, accurate answer seems to be whatever it was the Democrats proposed last week. <laughs> it's exactly right, and that's you know, and that's the problem that we see with the with the federal government today uh, in, in terms of its vast expansion. Uh, it's it's amazing to me to look at the things that Donald Trump has actually done in this administration that a lot of people that call themselves conservatives are perfectly okay with that if another administration had done it they would have you know they would have been throwing uh, huge fits and uh, so yeah it is it's i wrote an article years ago i gosh probably back in 2012 or 2013 about this very thing about how the uh, the the concept of conservatism in a political sense is a moving target and it it basically is whatever was was the thing 30 years ago and uh you know, now I'm I'm seeing things as I get older, and I look back and in, in into my younger days and things that we were just horrified at. Now they're just completely accepted by the by the conservative movement because the the left has managed managed to be able to shift that window progressively further and further over. Well, I think that they're both moving the window, and it, I don't. I, I'm going to stumble through this idea because I haven't really clarified it, but it seems like both parties, and that's sort of restrictive, everybody involved in the game, and probably libertarians to a degree, maybe more than we would like to say, are clinging to their own idea of what 
their identity is. So no matter what Trump is doing or what Obama did or Clinton or pick one, there is an adherence to my version of this, and everyone's going to double down on it because at least that's the thing that they understand, and that's the thing that's familiar, whereas all the other stuff, which is unknown, so unknown is scary and vulnerable and not safe. I feel like I'm the opening part of the Croods movie, but that seems to me to at least have some relevance into why people approach their version of liberal or conservative or Republican or Democrat or libertarian. Or, you know, libertarians are just crazy with identity. We have thick and thin and left and right and probably even more. And, it's, you know, you, you're either you're Hoppian or Misesian or Rothbard. It's like, stop. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute. You know, so with all of this, I don't know, people have tried to make a big deal out of this and they probably should, but, and it's, it's out of my wheelhouse, but all of this distinguishing and separating and separationing, which is inventing a word is almost, you know, just, it's almost taking Rothbard's uh, idea of, well, if, if a state can secede, why can't a county? If a county can, why can't a city? All the way down to one person, which gets finally right. to the voluntarius. What's the one person doing? Well, whatever he agrees to do with the other person who says yes as well. Right. And it, it it doesn't sound all that harsh. It sounds actually pretty nice. Hey, let's go fishing. Okay. It's yeah. the it's the scary thought of well, scary is maybe wrong, but how how does I think it's hard to envision how would voluntary action produce a shopping center if that was what was needed or produce a downtown. I think that people don't know how that can happen. Yeah, and and you know it's ironic because I believe that the vast majority of the interactions that we have on a day-to-day basis are really voluntarist or anarchist if you want to use a term to scare people. Uh, we, we don't usually have – I like the way Tom Wiz puts it, you know, people standing on a corner yelling at us through a bullhorn. Uh, and, and you can see this this uh, this idea of spontaneous order take place in in various places. Like if you, you walk through a mall, you know there's no traffic cops in a mall, but we manage to walk through a crowded mall generally without running into each other. Uh, they're just we just kind of flow into these little patterns, and you know things things tend to work themselves out. I think people are are scared because they think they have to have you know central planners directing them. But the reality of their lives, that, that's not what's happening. Uh, most of our relationships are voluntary and, and not coercive. And the ones that are coercive are usually the ones that are a hot mess. Right. You know? so. Let's talk for a minute about the 10th Amendment Center. Uh, I've, right. You've written there for a while, and I've only recently sort of found all of this. So I've, I read some of your work, and some of it seems to be defining the lines of what is legitimate government. And what is not, and we would say nearly all of it is not. I, I picked that word legitimate on purpose since we're <laughs> since we're trolling people. Let's just keep going. In a five-minute version, what is a legitimate function of government? All right. So I think I need to qualify what I'm going to say. In in what I, what I'm going to say is depending on the perspective from from which you're looking at it. So I would say. As Mike Meharry and my political philosophical belief uh, that 
no person has a right to initiate aggression against another person. That's one of the core uh, core ideas that I hold to, non-aggression principle, which really is an extension of self-ownership. So it really starts with the idea that I own myself. Nobody else owns me. I'm nobody's slave. I have the right to direct my actions. Uh, but in order for us to get along in society, there has to be some type of ethical restraints around that. I can't do whatever I want if I start harming other people. So that's where the non-aggression principle flows. Uh, and, and so these are kind of fundamental positions that I'm coming from, that this initiation of force is uh, is not a legitimate ethical way to interact with another person. Now, that's not to say that you can't use defensive force if somebody aggresses against you, but uh, aggressive force not allowed ethically and morally. So to me, in, in that worldview, the only legitimate government is a government that is truly consented to. So uh, for instance, a, a, a neighborhood association, as awful as they can be, or a, a homeowner's association, that would be a legitimate form of government because everybody goes into it knowing what the parameters are. They agree to it. You know, they sign the contract when they buy the house. Uh, they can leave if if they choose to do so. That would be a legitimate form of government. Uh, a church is a legitimate form of government. You know, you have a church hierarchy and you have rules of membership in order to be part of a church, but it's not coercive. You volunteer to be part of that of that institution. Uh, any government that is not based on consent would be illegitimate. And that's pretty much everything that we consider today government. So your state government, your local government, your federal government, your county government, I would say is morally and ethically illegitimate because it's all based on force and coercion, starting with taxation. Uh, you know, it's it's taking people's money, whether or not they agree to it and putting it to uh, uses that they may or may not want it used for. And, uh, you know, every I say this all the time and, and people look at me like I'm nuts. But when you really think through it, every single law that is passed by a legislature, every single law that is enforced by a government that's part of the state. And when I say the state, I'm using that in the in the big terms. So state could be country, it could be county, it could be city. Uh, but but part of that structure of, of government that we call the state. All of those are enforced at gunpoint. Everything down to like a seatbelt law is ultimately enforced at the at the point of a gun. And people say, "Well, Mike, you're crazy. Nobody's going to shoot you if you don't have your seatbelt fastened." <laughs> well, that's that, and that's true. But take it to its logical conclusion: if the cop pulls you over for not uh, uh, wearing your seatbelt and issues issues a ticket, and you refuse to pay the fine, then you can have your driver's license suspended. And if you get caught again without a driver's license, then you can be arrested. And if you resist arrest, that's when you start getting to the point of uh, you're going to get shot. So, you know, ultimately all of these laws are at the force of a gun. So, um, from that perspective, from, from a purely philosophical perspective, I would say that the vast majority of government that we live under today, and, and I use the term the state as opposed to government. I like to use the term state to kind of define government as it is today, as opposed to the more general idea of government uh, as something that, again, something like a church or a neighborhood association or, a, uh, you know, something that you entered into voluntarily uh, um, the, to, to counter, counter distinguish those two things. Um, so 
the state itself is illegitimate. Now, that leads us to a practical problem. We live in a real world, and as Murray Rothbard once says, you know, parroting libertarian principles is not enough in a real world. We have to have some strategy uh, in order to to move things forward if we truly believe that uh, we want to live in a world of more liberty, which is less aggression, then we have to, to take steps and, and move in, in that direction. So the Tenth Amendment Center to me is a pragmatic tool. It's a practical tool within the world that we live in that we can use to decentralize power and work within this government system as it exists, supposedly, uh, in, in order to move a step closer to liberty. And, and so from a American standpoint, we have this system of government that's been established. It was established by this thing we call a constitution. And, and some people will argue that uh, it's legitimate because it was ratified by you know, the people in a sense, uh, you know, that had ratifying conventions and the people in those conventions were elected by people in the states. So, so there is some sense of legitimacy there, although I think Spooner, uh, Lysander Spooner does a great job of demonstrating why in, in the big picture, the constitution isn't legitimate because you're binding people that, that never themselves agreed to it. But let's set that aside. We have this system of government, uh, that's based on this thing called the constitution. And so that creates what people call the rule of law in, in the United States. It's the government as it exists in the United States. And so if we're going to have a government, if we're going to have a state, it should at least operate under the rules that it was set up under. And so we can talk about legitimacy in the big picture sense, uh, in, in which case I'm going to say none of it's legitimate, but we can also talk about legitimacy within a constitutional structure, within the legal structure uh, that the government is supposed to operate in the United States. And then we have a whole other kind of set of, of legitimate things that various levels of government can do. And when it comes to the federal government, those things are actually quite limited uh, based on the Constitution as it was ratified and understood at the time. So the federal government really is only supposed to be operating uh, within very specific realms. It has delegated powers. Uh, not very many of them. And most of the governmental power in the United States was left to the state governments and then to the local governments. So the, the system as it exists in the United States is what we would call a federal system, um, which is a decentralized system. It decentralizes power and moves authority towards smaller and more local levels of government. Okay, so why is that better? Well, in my opinion, the centralization of power is always the greatest threat to liberty. It's a monopolization. We all understand why we don't want monopoly in the business world. We understand why we don't want Walmart to have a monopoly on groceries. If we do, we're going to get crappy customer service. Prices are generally going to rise. Uh, there'll be less concern about the, uh, the consumer. Uh, the, the company will be able to basically do what it wants without any checks or balances on its actions that having competitors brings into the system. Well, the same thing works with government. Monopoly government is just as insidious as a monopoly in an economic sense. And it's weird to me that you have all of these leftists, and, and to some degree people on the right, but predominantly leftists, who love the idea of centralized power. They love a strong centralized federal government, but they hate monopolies. Well, that's dumb. That doesn't make any sense. Their, their, their thinking is muddled there. Uh, so within this system, we have this decentralization that takes government down to more local levels. And I think, and, and I can practically demonstrate that people 
have more control over a local government or even a state government than they do over a federal government. So that's why I do the work that I do at the 10th Amendment Center, because it creates this decentralization. Uh, it, it creates uh, government competition, which is at least better than monopoly government in the same way that economic competition is better than economic monopoly. So I don't really know if I answered the question or not <laughs> with, with that long with that long ramble, but but hopefully it kind of counter distinguishes. Uh, you know, we can look at legitimacy through the American system, and then we can look at gener- uh, we can look at um, at it through a, a broader philosophical ethical perspective. No, it was a good answer. And one of the things that I've discovered in libertarian thinking is there's no shortage of information. So the idea of every law is ultimately enforced by the barrel of a gun sounds a lot like Larkin Rose. The so we're, we're <laughs> going to give people a reading list. The idea of decentralization, and I didn't I never really heard this guy, and then suddenly uh, McClanahan mentioned him, and I found him in a book, uh, Donald Livingston. And there was an, an essay in a book, and I'm going to forget the name of both of those things. In fact, it's it's so well written. It's so I read fairly well, but holy smokes, this thing's like wow! I have to read it again. But he makes an astonishingly spectacular argument for decentralization, for the compact theory of the Constitution. And I've had a I had the opportunity to meet Donald wow. Livingston, and it's it's you know it's amazing because you, like you said, you read you read what he writes, and, and the guy is obviously brilliant. You sit down and talk to him; he is the most humble, gentlemanly, gentil. He, he is the epitome of the genteel Southerner. Uh, my wife and I both had lunch with him, and and uh, just just a pleasure to sit down and talk with, and and never made you feel like I'm this smart intellectual, and you're just this dude. Uh, Side note there, but yeah, I, I really, really respect him not only as a as a scholar, but also just as a as being a kind of a genuinely good human being. Well, there there seems to be a shortage, not necessarily on genuinely good people, but definitely a shortage on genteel folks. And yeah, and that's a man that I, I miss. <laughs> that is distinctly southern contribution. Yeah, for sure. So. Let's get into the nitty-gritty here about part-time libertarians and in, in sort of this battle with the state. Now, in particular, one of the things I'm focusing on, since this is the culinary libertarian, is food sovereignty, which takes a lot of different kind of roads. And that can be from being a cottage baker in your state to also being a cottage baker at the flea market, which is going to have a different set of <laughs> state rules and regulations, which right. the apologist says, well, that's just there to keep people safe. Well, nobody is opposed to keeping people safe. It's amazing that to keep people safe requires you to pay the state tribute. So we have two competing things, safety of the state and pay me. So let's talk a little bit about the the food sovereignty. And you wrote uh, a piece you shared with me about food rights issues. And this seems to be at least one of those things that doesn't necessarily live in either the left or the right. This seems to bring everybody together from all political spectrums because it turns out that most people like to drink milk and eat cookies. And where they got the cookies, they probably don't really care. 
Now, whether or not that person puts walnuts in her chocolate chip cookie, well, that's a personal preference. But the fact that Granny made them makes them almost better than other cookies. This is something that's slowly gaining some traction, and Joel Salatin and John Moody are doing a lot to sort of get this in the public eye. The, the group that's done the most in terms of, I'm going to introduce another word, nullifying these sort of laws is the cannabis people. They've done a great yep. job. Between those two areas, is there some other group, perhaps, where you've seen these otherwise politicized folks become part-time libertarians over this issue, and they recognize that the state really doesn't have any business in involved in me making baking cookies and selling them to my neighbor. You're asking about other issues where where we see the same kind of uh, I don't want to say bipartisan, but uh, yes, widespread acceptance. Oh, there, yeah. Yes, yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. And I think you're absolutely right with with the food sovereignty movement. I mean, you know, it, it's not a left right issue, and I think that's kind of what we're getting at here. Things that are not necessarily left right issues. Some things are are immediately going to polarize along those traditional political lines. You start talking about abortion, you're going to split it down a left-right paradigm. Gun control, generally going to split down a left-right paradigm. Although you're starting to see some folks on the left uh, embrace the idea of, of needing guns, because I guess they, it is kind of dumb to think that uh, you know Donald Trump's going to institute uh, concentration camps and then take everybody's guns away. But um I think one of the other areas that we've seen this same type of uh, of of kind of crossing the, that political spectrum is in the area of surveillance and uh, also asset forfeiture. Um, you know, I, I think most most people inherently value their privacy, um, and they recognize that the uh, government shouldn't have the authority and the ability to sweep up all of their private communications and. Uh, store them away and, and use them at their will. I think most people recognize whether they're on the left or the right or in the middle, that there is inherent danger in allowing government to, to do these type of things because it's ultimately going to be politicized. We've seen surveillance politicized uh, with, uh, you know, surveilling groups like Black Lives Matter uh, on the left or using the IRS to target Tea Party on the right. So we recognize this inherent problem with with these kind of big government overreaching powers. So we've definitely seen uh, uh, that type of kind of crossing those borders and these odd coalitions of of left and right on issues like surveillance, asset forfeiture as well. I think most people intuitively recoil at the fact that police can come and take your stuff without even necessarily charging you with a crime. Uh, everybody just kind of just has this intuitive wait. What the heck? I mean, how how can that be a thing? I think um, there's first an initial disbelief that no, come on, that can't be so. That's yeah, you know, they can't do you, that. You've clearly missed something. You have omitted an important detail in your story, telling me how the cops just took forty thousand dollars of your money. Right, but um, yeah, that th- those are two two issues that um. We've we've definitely seen that, but I really think that that probably the food sovereignty is um, is probably the biggest because it really it's hyper local. 
Uh, and that's really where we've seen the movement blossoming in, in particularly in places like Maine uh, and some other Northeast states where, you know, th- there's, there's a long tradition in the, in the Northeast with home rule and the idea of, uh, of local governance, uh, local power, and, you know, goes all the way back to the colonial era. And we've definitely seen uh, folks up in that area taking control at a, at a county and city level of, of their food loss and basically passing laws that allow, uh, you know, like you're talking about, that, that will not interfere with people who are selling cakes out of their house or at the uh, local farmer's market. And the interesting thing about these local actions, and you mentioned nullification, I want to touch on that a minute because I think it's a very important uh, concept uh, for anybody who cares anything about liberty. And, and basically, we define nullification. There's there's kind of a legal technical term. Don't need to get into all that. But from a practical standpoint, nullification is very simply taking an action that serves to make a law ineffective. So it can you know still be on the books, but basically it can't be enforced. Uh, one of my favorite examples is driving down any highway we all nullify the speed limit on pretty much a daily basis. You know, there's the average speed and on a highway where the speed limit says 55 is not 55 miles per hour. And there's not anything in the world the government can do short of shutting down the highway to make it so that everybody drives 55 miles an hour. It just can't be done. Uh, the, the momentum of the desires of individuals overpowers the will of the government. Uh, and we can do this in all kinds of ways. And, and we see this uh, in various political movements. So with food sovereignty, when a county stops enforcing certain food laws on certain groups of people, uh, that makes it much more difficult for the state to enforce those laws because generally the state depends on local help with enforcement. It makes it even more difficult for federal agencies like the FDA to enforce laws because the FDA definitely depends upon state and local enforcement cooperation. So you start taking away these layers of enforcement, you start removing layers of laws, it makes it more and more difficult for the powers that be to enforce their will. And uh, so we've seen this kind of bottom up movement in food sovereignty, where it started at the county level and counties basically just said, we're not going to enforce uh, these various regulations on certain individuals or or certain groups of people. And then uh, uh, in Maine, we actually saw a law passed at the state level, which recognizes the the sovereignty of the county sovereignty Mm -hmm. and basically makes it illegal for the state to enforce laws uh, in, in those counties. And so there, again, it runs up the scale and it makes it much more difficult for the FDA. So we have nullification in effect. And where it really starts, and I think this is the absolute key, where it really starts is with the individual. People have to be willing to do the thing that the government doesn't want them to do. And with certain things, they're definitely willing to do it. There are people that are willing to break the law and drink raw milk. There are definitely people out there that are willing to break the law and smoke weed. It's just the way it is. And you can agree or disagree with weed, or you can agree or disagree with whether or not raw milk is a good thing to drink. People want to do it. They're going to do it. They can do it, and they will do it. And that individual impetus is actually what powers any nullification movement. The reason that we have federal marijuana prohibition falling apart right now started with the fact that there were hundreds and millions of people who were like, I'm going to smoke weed. 
And then we had one state, California, back in 1996 that said, you know what, we're going to legalize this for medical purposes, whether or not the federal government wants us to or not. And believe me, the federal government tried every way in the world to crack down. I mean, it was the enforcement efforts that were brought to bear in California in the early days of the medical marijuana movement were significant and profound. And yet people were willing to risk it and people were willing to continue moving forward. And that momentum has grown. And today we have 33 states with medical marijuana, and I I believe we're up to 11 that have uh, legalized completely. So this idea of nullification is a very powerful tool. It's the center of our political activism at the 10th Amendment Center. And I think it is one of the most practical paths to liberty. And I wish some of the other people, left-wingers are really good at this, people on the left, um, you know, they were pretty much the people that drove the early days of the marijuana movement. I wish people on the right would embrace it. If the gun people had half the guts of the marijuana people, we wouldn't have federal gun control because they wouldn't be able to enforce it. But, you know, we've got too many people on the left. Well, you know, the, the federal government passed the law, so we're going to have to go to court and try to get the court to change its mind. Now, screw all that. <laughs> Don't enforce it. Do you think, and maybe this is true, and I'm just wondering for, so the raw milk is a big deal. And I know, I think the bill has stalled, but there was a chap in Tennessee who introduced a bill for the herd share. So if you are, if you, Mike, are the farmer who owns the cow and 10 other people are involved in your herd share, those 10 people <laughs> will become criminals just by drinking the milk from your cow. From a nullification standpoint, let's say there are 100 herd share in Tennessee, there's probably more, but and so all of those people get together and say, you know what, we're doing this anyway, and, and this is where it just gets kind of silly to me. This isn't actually a good guy, bad guy thing. This isn't this is this is my decision. I'm going to drink this. Sal- I'm going to drink this milk. Come and stop me, and and they want to. The government wants to. The FDA wants to sweep in with. I don't. They're probably not stormtroopers. They're probably in lab coats. But still, the whole idea that your decision to drink this milk, and the only thing that's different about it is because it wasn't pasteurized and sold in the store. And I just that's irritating to me. So can people in various states who are uh, baking cakes or muffins or bagels or drinking raw milk or or something? I mean, gun control, that's probably a whole other topic. And that comes with a lot more baggage where the, the idea of being of getting in trouble for drinking a glass of milk, that just sounds preposterous. Getting in trouble for selling some cookies. I mean, come on. So can, I don't want to use the word union because that sort of makes an, a, 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 the wrong idea, but an, an association, a, a, a gathering, something. Can, can people get together and say, we as this group of bakers are going to ignore this one particular rule in the cottage laws? Is that possible? Yeah. I mean, we see it all the time. You know, I mean, people have been, people were smoking weed long before anybody legalized it. Um, but but yeah, the weed have, have, people weren't black and gray markets. Yeah, well, but I don't think the weed people were all you know acting. Well, so here's an interesting thought. Maybe they were all <laughs> as as one million separate volunteers were all acting in unison as as unique entities. So that's a that's a mind blowing idea. Yeah, you know, I think you could do it. I, I mean, I think people are generally reluctant to band together and publicly defy 
law. Well, that's kind of brave. So it is. And, and and let's be honest. I mean, you, like I said, you go back to the early days of the of the medical marijuana movement in California. A lot of people went to jail. A lot of people went to jail for a long time. A lot of people lost a lot of money. So there's a risk involved. You know, it, it requires people who are willing to at, at some point sacrifice. And let's be honest, how many of us are really willing to sacrifice for a glass of raw milk? Um, I think mo- people are more likely to begin uh creating gray markets or even black markets where it begins to grow. But here's the thing that's interesting to me about markets. Markets tend to take on a life of their own. When there is a market for something, when people want something enough that they're willing to you know, pay a price and, and get that thing, you put even the tiniest crack in regulation and that market will tend to grow. You mentioned herd shares and in the political evolution of these types of things, herd shares are kind of the foot in the door. So that's kind of the thing that uh, a, a lot of states are willing to say, okay, well, we'll let you buy shares in this cow and then drink the raw milk from it, but we're not going to let you sell it, retail it. We're, but, but that will let you do at least that much. Mike, let me take a few minutes out to tell the folks about my affiliate, Things I never knew existed. Yep. All those funny gags you see at Halloween or remember from visits to your cousin's house, hand buzzers and whoopee cushions, can be found at my affiliate link, culinarylibertarian.com slash I never knew. Things I never knew existed is still a family-owned company, and when you call, you will speak to a person in the USA. Click through and shop the wide selection of items from the newest t-shirts or political figurines, some with sign language hand signals, or check out the selection of Halloween items. More than a few items are there to be found, which scare for reals or scare the snowflakes. It's also not too early to start thinking about Christmas. Yes, I said it. Christmas! Click over to culinarylibertarian.com slash I never knew to shop the silly and hard to find, the as seen on TV, and things you never knew existed but now have to have. Culinarylibertarian.com slash I never knew. Now, let's get back to the show. But I tell you what, once you get that foot in the door and people recognize that there's a market, Almost always, those laws begin to expand, and then the next thing you know, you've got uh, limited sales at the uh, farmers market, and then the next thing you know, you've got limited retail sales, and then the next thing you know, you know, it expands and grows. Um, so, if you can just get your foot in the door, I think when people, if, if people want to bind together. Uh, I think part of the reason that they don't bind together and just outright defy a law is because when well, you're shining a spotlight on yourself and you're basically saying. You know, you're, it's it's kind of like the kid defying his parents and, and the parent is going to say, well, I'm going to have to put my foot down whether this is a big deal or not. Because, But I think if, if you have that type of, of organization and you have that type of unity, um, and some people are going to disagree with me on this. I mean, I, I have friends that are, uh, you know, the, hard, the hardcore anarchists who don't think you should involve yourself in the political system at all. I don't, I don't agree with that philosophy. I think that... Uh, we're better off changing laws. And and some people will say, well, you know, Mike, uh, you know, there's still government regulation. Well, that's true, but 
you know, if you're making the government regulations so people aren't getting locked in a cage, then I, I think that's a step forward. Uh, so I do believe in political activism, and and you can talk to people who disagree with me, and you know, they're they're entitled to that point of view. But I think if you can can muster that type of organization, then the then starting at the local level, try to get your local ordinances you know, changed to allow for, uh, raw milk. If you can't do it there, do it at the state level. Um, and then allow that pressure to build, allow the market to expand. And, and then, like I said, uh, ultimately you're going to end up with much looser laws down the road. It, it seems to me, and as I've kind of watched this over the, the last 10 years that I've been involved with the 10th amendment center and been involved in this kind of legislative activism, very rarely have I seen laws get tighter once that foot is in the door, they almost always get looser. I can't think of a case in in marijuana or food or or surveillance or any of these things where getting that small first step has not led to bigger steps down the road. Hmm. Well, that's hopeful because I'm going to ask you something uh, a little bit more challenging. So we sort of covered, you know, so we would say the victimless crimes are the drug crimes, and since it's it's the same idea as the milk, since I'm putting it into me. I'm the one being affected. That's the decision I'm making. That can be a moral discussion, which is probably for your other podcast, but not for this one. So uh, let's talk a little bit more uh, challenging issues, which involves the state and say things which you brought up, facial recognition or the license plate readers or other ways that the state is in is almost trying to find you being a criminal just for being. And that comes, I think, with a bit more of an emotional challenge because I think I think people want to comply as opposed to not comply because we know what happens when you don't comply. But this infringement, it just seems to be growing. So how are we finding any part-time libertarians in the facial recognition or license plate readers or some of the other sort of I mean, it's, it's almost underhanded ways the state is getting involved in our lives. Yeah, absolutely. I I am very hopeful for the way that we're seeing uh, efforts to minimize and limit the impact and the use of a lot of these very, very um, intrusive. What's the word I'm looking for? Intrusive. That's exactly the word I was looking for. Intrusive surveillance technologies. Uh, there's been three cities in the last several months that have outright banned facial recognition. Uh, there's a bill that has been proposed in the Michigan legislature that would ban the use of facial recognition technology, um, recognizing that it is not very accurate and uh, that uh, there's a tremendous potential for abuse uh, of these technologies. So, and and again, these are being driven by what you would call left-right coalitions, and I'm talking far left, and uh, and and I don't know about far right, but uh, you know, definitely strong conservative-leaning organizations that are that are binding, binding together on these things. Now, you know, you do get some ebb and flow with politics. Uh, we definitely saw more conservative interest in limiting surveillance when Obama was in office. And we're definitely seeing a lot more left-wing interest in it now that Trump is in office. But still, there's a, a very strong uh, multi-partisan effort to limit uh, not just facial recognition, but stingray devices, 
um, and uh, license plate readers that you mentioned, uh, cameras in general, drone surveillance, uh, all of these types of things, police militarization, which is it's uh, at least uh, associated with surveillance. Yeah, definitely we're seeing that that push. And here's where, you know, going to the legitimacy of government, there there is a framework in place to limit these things. This is the Fourth Amendment uh, of the U.S. Constitution as far as the federal government goes. And then every state uh, constitution also has provisions protecting the right to privacy and requiring warrants and, and all of these things. And the problem that we have uh, in the realm of surveillance today is that technology has rushed ahead of the law. So, you know, you're, you're pretty well protected about uh, when it comes to the government spying on your landline telephone. Uh, you know, they, they, it, it's not easy for the police to go get a wiretap order. They can't just go plug into your phone and listen in on your conversations. On the other hand, when it comes to a cell phone, uh, in a lot of cases, they can literally just intercept your cell phone transmission, start listening in on your conversation without any type of, of warrant or oversight at all. So we're seeing these laws passed at the state and local level. Um, first off, requiring warrants, uh, circumscribing the use of this type of technology, ensuring that, it, that it's being used properly. And then another thing that we're seeing, and this is more of a local type of uh, activism, is we're seeing cities that are requiring uh, government entities, primarily police departments, to actually get uh, city council approval before they can purchase and start using uh, any type of surveillance technology. A lot of types, times this stuff is purchased without any any uh, uh, oversight, without any notice. You know, They use federal grant money or off-the-book budget money. They go buy a stingray or a license plate readers. All of a sudden, it's being used and nobody ever even knew, much less approved of it. So uh, we're seeing ordinances passed in a number of cities uh, that require police to actually have a surveillance plan, give public notice, get council approval before they can start using it, have a plan on how the data is going to be stored and shared, ensure that there are warrants involved, all of these things being taken care of up front. And, you know, this doesn't stop the proliferation of this type of technology, but it does create a, an environment of oversight and transparency, which is, is the first key. And when you have oversight and transparency, then people in the local community can step up and say, hey, uh, you know, we hear that the uh, police department wants to get a surveillance drone. We want, we don't want them to have that. They have a whole lot better chance of of getting that stopped if they know it's coming, as opposed to you know finding out one day there's a drone hovering over their house and then trying to get it retroactively rolled back. So um, you know the 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 surveillance thing again, it's something that most people recoil at. Other you know you do get the people that well, if you don't have anything to hide, you don't have anything huh. to fear. Uh, you, well, you do have that bunch of people, but but that's pretty easily overcome, really, because they don't mean it. Uh, I've challenged people with this uh, on multiple occasions. I've, uh, I'm actually involved in some surveillance issues here in my hometown. I've actually ended up getting myself sued by the city government as I've attempted to uncover what type of surveillance cameras they're using. But So I've done a lot of, of radio and, and public speaking on this issue and the fact that people really do care about their privacy. Yes, I think that that's true. Well, that's that's going to turn perfectly into the next transition, which is this. The answer to this is probably a book, and if, if you want to write it, it's fine. How do we take or how do we make the part-time libertarian full-time? Oh, that's a good question. Um, patience, I think. 
I, I don't know the answer to that question. That, that's the honest answer. I don't know. Um, you know, for me, and and this is kind of the framework that I that I'm going to have to look at, at the world through because it's my experience. It, it did take a while because I was really I was a part time libertarian. I mean, that's really what brought me here, and it was being exposed to folks who were consistent in their principles, who were consistent in in their ideas. And seeing them over a long period of time that gradually started to change my worldview and brought me to the place that I am now. Uh, so I think I think one of the things is, is just to be patient with people. I think a lot of times we we get frustrated because our eyes have been opened. We've seen the light and we don't understand how people can be so thick-headed and stupid and it frustrates us and we want to yell at them and and uh, and ridicule them and Honestly, I think sometimes some people are so lost that ridicule is is probably the best uh, the best way to go. But when you have folks that that you're willing that are willing to work with you on given issues, uh, I think just using those to continue to build bridges and and to continue to talk to people and, and build those relationships is is really important. I'll give you a good example of this. Um, I mentioned the fact that I was involved in a lawsuit. Um, it's an open records lawsuit. And uh, the the city basically sued me because they're trying to keep uh, their surveillance cameras secret. And the uh, state attorney general has sided with me in my open records request. So in order to try to quash it, the uh, city has sued me. And I would have never been able to handle a lawsuit like this on my own. Fortunately for me, uh, the ACLU has agreed to take my case. So I've been working with the ACLU on this case. It's almost going on two years now, which is absurd. But um so I've developed relationships with these folks at the ACLU, and uh, one of the one of the people there is the uh, policy director. We've had lunch a couple of times and just chatted, and uh, and you know she would be considered by most people a lefty, uh, you know, pretty progressive, uh, typical of what you would expect somebody who worked for the ACLU to be. But we're having this conversation, and I was talking a little bit about my political philosophy, and she was talking about some things, and we were talking about various areas of policy agreement, criminal justice reform, surveillance being two key issues. And uh, you know, I was kind of explaining the idea of, of non-aggression, and, and she looked at me and she goes, huh, maybe I'm an anarchist. <laughs> now, you know, I don't know how far that's taken, but but Obviously, there's some thought process going on just by virtue of the fact that we're interacting with each other on friendly terms and on common ground. And, you know, a lot of times you have to agree to disagree, but I believe that our worldview is a winning worldview. Our ideals and principles are strong and they're worth embracing. And I think that. As people come to understand the idea of non-aggression and voluntary association and those types of things, those are appealing things. I think they, they intuitively resonate with us as good things. We want good lives. We don't want to we don't want to force our way on other people. Most people don't. Some do. They're all politicians, uh, but uh, most people don't, and and we certainly don't want others others' worldviews being forced and and pushed upon us. So. Um, you know, I think it just takes a, a, a lot of patience in, in finding these places to build bridges. That's why I love the work that we're doing at the Tenth Amendment Center, uh, because it does build bridges and it does allow us to talk to folks that we might otherwise disagree with and, and set aside uh, areas of contention to work together toward a common goal. And if nothing else, that drops some of the animosity so we aren't 
instantly approaching each other with uh, with malice and, and with distrust and with anger. We trust each other, and, and so we can we can move forward. And if nothing else, we've gained allies in these given issues. And I, and I do believe at some point it will win converts to the broader cause of liberty, uh, because, like I said, I think our I think our worldview is appealing. I think our worldview is true. I think it stands up to scrutiny. And uh, I think when people are pushed out of their political paradigm, uh, they are are they find themselves in a space where they can start to embrace these things. So, you know, maybe not the most satisfactory answer because I think we want a, a pill that we can give people <laughs> to to convert them, and it's just not as simple as that. But uh, I know a lot of people like me, both on the left and the right, who have who have kind of made that journey slowly but surely from. Uh, whatever status worldview they held to a uh, a more libertarian worldview. So, um, you know, each one of those peoples is a win. And every once in a while you hear somebody going back, but but I think more often than not, once people get here, they stay. I think that that's probably true. So let me ask um, maybe a, a follow-up, which is kind of expand on the idea, which would be what do you suggest for people who are fed up with the status quo, but not fed up with being concerned about rights to heal oneself, either be it with cannabis or whatever, uh, or to eat or drink <laughs> cookies and milk. How, for the people that want to know where to go, because these are ideas that they think are worth pursuing, how do they get there? I think find ways to get involved in your local community. Whatever the issue is that you're passionate about, uh, if it's food sovereignty, then then find those folks. If it's surveillance, find those folks. Because I guarantee you, no matter where you are, there are people that are going to be with you on that particular issue. Um, and in a lot of places, you're going to find that there are already people doing that kind of work. Um, and join forces with them. You know, Start doing local activism. One of the things that we're working on at the Tenth Amendment Center, we're going to do a video series uh, we're, we're working on scripting it now, so it's probably a, a good ways out from being completed. But we want to do a nuts and bolts, how to do activism at the local level. Um, I, I think our inclination politically in the United States is to focus on the next presidential race, who is your congressman, who is your senator. Senator, everything's Washington D.C. And uh, Michael Bolden used to joke, you know, never call the two hundred two area code. That's DC area code. And I used to, I didn't get it. I was like, well, why would you not do that? That's where the government is. Well, precisely. <laughs> that's where the government is. That's, that's uh, lording over you, but uh, there's so much more power at the local level. And, and that's why I started getting involved in surveillance here in Lexington. And, and I've built a nice little grassroots uh, coalition around me. That's, that's pushing to get one of those ordinances that I mentioned earlier that would create transparency and oversight uh, for surveillance is a first step. Uh, anybody can do it. It's just a matter of of finding the thing that you're passionate about and then networking. We have these wonderful tools with uh, with social media where we can find like-minded people and connect with them. Um, you know, we started basically with two of us doing uh, surveillance activism in, in Lexington and now our Facebook page. I think we've got some 700 followers and uh, we've got about 30 people in our inner core who who are working, you know, more actively. Um, and, you know, we just did that networking through social media and and doing some practical nuts and bolts things. So, you know, my advice to folks who, who really want to get involved and do something is start local and, uh, you know, find work that's already going on. If, if uh, 
Uh, if you're interested in in raw milk, go go to your uh, local farmer's market. Those people are there, I guarantee you. And just start talking to people and networking and, and saying, hey, what can we do? Where can we move forward? Uh, what organizations are already in existence? And, and if they're not, well, then uh, take the step and, and start your own, you know. And we do have resources at the 10th Amendment Center, um, particularly when it comes to local surveillance uh, issues that that we can provide. Uh, if you head to 10thAmendmentCenter.com, um, we've got all kinds of stuff over there. And if anybody wants um, sp- specific advice on that issue, they can email me at michael.meharry at 10thAmendmentCenter.com, and I'll be able to be happy to help out with that. Um, but you know, there's there's folks doing stuff all over the place. It's just a matter of, of finding them, getting involved. Cool. Since this is the Culinary Libertarian Show, we're going to talk a little bit about food and some yeah, fun, like short answer questions that I think you're going to enjoy. So of the five flavors, sweet, salty, bitter, sour, and umami, which one do you enjoy the most? I'm a sweet tooth, man. What's your favorite food? Oh man, favorite food. That's a really hard question because I like a lot of different kinds of food. I, I have a, a wide palate. And like my my son, my son's basic palate is noodles. <laughs> so I like all kinds of food. I think if, uh, you know, if I had to say, what this is your last meal, Mike, what do you want it to be? I think it would probably be shrimp. Uh, Preferably grilled, but I'll eat it just about any way in the world. I love, I love shrimp and seafood in general. What's your least favorite food? Okra and liver. Ugh. You're a southerner. How can you not like fried okra? <laughs> I didn't mean okra. I meant Brussels sprouts. Ah, well, that's a very different I said, I said okra, yeah. Brussels by okra. I don't know why I said okra. Uh, Brussels sprouts is is uh, they're those bitter little cabbagey things. Ugh. My wife insists if you wrap them up in bacon that, that you can make them edible. And I'm like, why bother with that? Just eat the bacon. Well, I, I, my brother felt the same way you did. And I like them pretty much any way you can do them, even sometimes as a slaw. But what gets you excited? Just in general? Yeah. Hockey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pretty pretty much getting lacing up the skates and getting out on the ice to, to stop pucks. That definitely gets me excited. What turns you off? Oh, Rude people. What sound do you love? Music. I'm a I'm a musician. I love music. So any kind of any kind of music sound uh, soothes my soul. What sound do you hate? Mm. Things that are squeaking repetitively. Uh, <laughs> I had that in my car for a while. It was awful. <laughs> what is your favorite food indulgence? Donuts, <laughs> especially like especially like don- gourmet donuts. You know that are like big. Covered with like chocolate and stuff. And <laughs> That's a fine food indulgence. Yes, indeed. So last question, which is not a food question. What book or books would you suggest for people to begin their liberty journey? Two books come to come right off the top of my head. I really think that the key, I think the key thing that hangs people up that makes it difficult for them to grasp the concept of, of liberty is they don't understand economics. I think you've got to be able to grasp economics in order to understand liberty. Markets are are hand in hand with liberty. And the reason that so many of the things that the government tries to do that sound good in our little minds and benevolent don't work is because of economics. And you just can't escape economics. So uh, I, I highly recommend reading uh, 
Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. I think that's a must read. Um, and then going a little bit more into the philosophical, but still something that is fundamentally economics and that will help start you thinking in terms of the way economic and policy works together is the law by uh, Bastiat. Um, and that's, it's, it sounds more complicated than he is. Both of those are really pretty easy reads. Um, so I would highly recommend both of those books. And, uh, and then if you really want to get deeper into the philosophy of liberty, the ethics of liberty by uh, Rothbard is fantastic as well. Okay. Well, I've read The Law and I've read Economics in One Lesson. I have not read that particular thing of Rothbard's yet. Um, the guy has a lot. So. <laughs> yeah, right? You could spend the rest of your life just reading reading Rothbard essays. Well, and the and if you really want to try to get bold, and I haven't made it all the way through, you can you can dig into Man, Economy, and State. Yeah, I've... I, I agree with you about the understanding of economics and, and that can take you to just I mean, the, every, every topic has its own just minefield of, of ways to go. And as much as I know, I need to understand economics better. Some of it just, it doesn't, it's not, it's not compelling to me. So yeah, I the, the things like Livingston's article, the more of the intellectual stuff, that's much more compelling to me and of much more interest to me. And, yeah. and that, so I guess to my detriment, I'm not really focusing on the economics, but I'm getting something out of it from the other side of it. So, yeah, well, I mean, it's, you know, it's impossible to read everything and you have to, you have to kind of focus in on what your, your brain will wrap around uh, a couple other things that just jumped to my mind more on the philosophy side. And I mentioned this earlier in the beginning of, of, uh, of the talk uh, is uh, Lysander Spooner, the essay, no treason, uh, which isn't even a book. It's not no, even terribly it, it long. If you want to, if you want to dig into the idea of the consent of the government of the governed um, you know, that's a, a fantastic treatment of it. Um, another thing that was real formulative, formulative for me before I really was, uh, I was starting down the path of libertarianism, but more in terms of, of American history and American political philosophy is the, uh, the second treatise of government by John Locke, um, which is, is kind of the philosophy that the U S system is, uh, theoretically built on. Right. And then if you want another economics book, um, Hans Hermann Hoppe, socialism and capitalism, um, is, is really good in terms of getting into kind of the idea of the fundamental ideas of self-ownership and uh, uh, property rights and those type of things. Although a lot of people don't like Hoppe because they think he's a racist, but. Um, I, I've heard that. I don't personally find that to be the case, but. And here's, here's the thing is uh, this, I have to get on my soapbox here for just a second. This, just real quick, <laughs> because this annoys the fire out of me. And we, and we kind of talked about this before. You mentioned the, the dividing up in libertarian land. You know, we've got the thicks and the thins and the Cato's and the, and the Mises. And, you know, all these people want to get together and fight. Look, there's about 45 of us. So it really is not very smart for us to divide <laughs> up and fight because there's not enough of us to divide up. But the thing that really frustrates me is, is people seem to have, and this isn't just libertarians. I mean, I think this is a human nature thing, but we have this tendency of when we disagree with one thing, then we want to throw out everything else that somebody said. 
to me, that's just absolutely absurd. And I'll give you an example of that, how that this came up the other day. Uh, for my Godarchy podcast, I inter- uh, interviewed Maj, who's mm, the yeah. guy that founded Black Guns Matter. And dude's doing fantastic works in terms of Second Amendment, right to keep and bear arms, bringing that message into the inner city. And also uh, to to a big, a large degree, the idea of libertarianism and self-ownership and freedom into uh, the the urban neighborhoods where, quite frankly, they're not going to listen to me. I, I've never felt so white in my life as, as when I interviewed Maj. Uh, but, you know, he's made some comments about immigration and uh, that, that, some folks in the libertarian world find off-putting uh, and they disagree with them. And we could debate that. I wasn't there to talk to him about immigration. I was there to talk to him about his organization, Black Guns Matter. I don't understand why you're not going to listen to anything a guy says because you disagree with him on one issue. That just absolutely blows my mind. So, you know, there I don't agree with everything that Hop has ever written. I don't agree with everything that I've read from Rothbard. I don't agree with everything from anybody. I'm not even sure I agree with everything that I've written. You know, so I wish people would be more open minded and 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 not say, oh, I can't read that. That's from Cato or I'm not going to read that. That's from Mises Institute. That's just dumb to me. You know, take things at face value and find find the truth where you can find the truth. And if you disagree with something, then cool, disagree with it. But that doesn't make everything that a, that a person says uh, irrelevant or uh unworthy of a hearing so well no, you, into that rant. no you're right and it's 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 a worthwhile rant and woods has made the same observation and in my sort of com, com, of course woods is a racist too so we can't listen well, of course, to him no. either. and he's short so uh, well yeah um, I, I you know i don't i have no background on this but part of the part of why i think that's the case is it's a whole lot easier to completely dismiss an idea for one small kink in the armor as opposed to admitting to yourself, well, I'm <laughs> self, it looks like I might have been wrong about this issue. I better go rethink my position and reevaluate all this. Well, that's a lot right. of work. And between the amount of work it takes to find out where you might be wrong on a thing, and then the hubris or the or the bruised hubris to find out you were wrong about a thing, it's a whole lot easier to say, ah, never mind, those guys, they're just terrible. Right, right. And yeah. I think we do that at we our were- loss. I think we lose, not just individually, collectively, we lose something for the inability to accept a new idea. And yep. that's probably I, somebody knows the answer. I think that's a fairly new thing. I think that's probably be part th- of humanity because look at the Federalists and the other Federalists. So we're rejecting an right. idea. Right. So that's it's. I don't know. There's there's a distinction here somewhere. I think I, I have no idea when, but somehow it seems to me that this this ninety nine percent right is discarded for the one percent I don't like. Yeah. And I think part of that, and this, this again, dovetails with something we talked about earlier, is uh, just the way, you know, we, we talked about issue-driven politics. I think politics is also, it seems more and more personality-driven. So you're a Trump person or you're an Obama person. And it's like, the thing, I mean, it's so, so absolutely insane on the mainstream level that you've got Trump supporters cheering things that Trump's doing that they hated when Obama did. 
just because it's their dude. And, and so we have this same personality driven kind of thing. I think that goes on in, in libertarianism as well. Uh, and not just personalities, but, but, you know, maybe institutional alignments, you know, I'm a Cato guy or I'm a Mises guy, or I'm a Woods guy, or I'm a, and, and, you know, instead of um, one of the people I really respect in this movement is, is Bob Hicks, Robert Hicks, because he has largely managed to stay above that fray. He seems to get along with everybody. And, uh, I, I really, that's, that's one of the things I admire. And no, so here I am bringing a person. That- well, he also lives on a tropical Island where nobody comes to see. It's like, yeah, you know what? He's, he's <laughs> right. given double fisted F you to everybody. And yeah. That's a- so here I am bringing, interjecting a personality into it, but I don't know. I just, I appreciate the fact that, that he kind of stays above that fray and doesn't seem to be wedded to uh, one institution and, and you know, I'm sure that there's people out there that say, oh, that Meharry guy, you know, he's he's friends with Woods, so he must be a racist, which is dumb. No, he's a but, hockey player. How can we listen to him? He plays hockey, for God's sakes. Well, and then hockey players, you know, hockey's pretty much all white people, so therefore racist. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> although there is a growing movement in, in hockey to uh, to bring the sport into minority communities. It's one of those sports that's expensive, so it's – um, it is expensive. It, it, it's it's hard to uh, it's hard to get into poor neighborhoods. So. Well, but there are actually some pretty cool movements in an NHL city, just and also, that, which I approve of, hurts. despite my my innate racism. I mean, I ice skated as a kid in Michigan all the time, even in August. boom! But ice hockey, <laughs> well, one, there's a skill level in in just even controlling the puck and making <laughs> making a weak shot. Never mind slap shot. So there's there's a pretty high learning curve on being competent competent with a puck and right. a stick and then all that junk on and then being checked and hitting the ice and it's like wait a minute there's a lot of pain involved in this game i think i'd rather not do this game <laughs> yeah it is it is rather painful I, I never had to learn how to shoot because i'm a goalie so i basically just have to to make sure that i'm in front of the puck and let it hit me but but i will attest to the fact that that does hurt <laughs> yeah that never despite all the never math. looked like a better choice to me so skating yeah, i enjoyed well. tremendously hockey i I, admi- I admire and respect those who do it at all and even more so those who do it well but that was not my game yeah well that's and and there there we have to each their own right. right we can live in this world together we can be we can be friends and non hockey allies no way man we need a law that says reed plays <laughs> hockey <laughs> you know that okay, might yeah, be we'll, a perfect we'll way to that. explain the idiocy of the laws of personal choice maybe we should i don't know yeah absolutely absolutely all right so or or we could pass a law that might can't play hockey because it's oh. dangerous right it's a dangerous to my health huh well, you're thinking like I mean, a politician. My wife, my wife might go for you, that. You might have to run for office. You no. can't do those things because you <laughs> no. might get hurt. No, you, I'm not running. Uh, I will not run for any office. No, I, I was I was kidding about that. I, I have uh, – so I think lots of us have come up with this sort of own little clip of our own, which I think is – it's not Mickin. It might have been Lewis. I don't know who it was, but pretty much I rewrote it to, to read – Anybody who seeks on purpose the office of president is automatically disqualified from having it. Because pretty much anybody who wants the job does such a bad job at it. 
Yep. Anybody, I've heard a kind of the variation of that. Anybody who, uh, the people who would actually be good at governing would never take the job because they don't want that kind of power. Exactly. And so those are the people who we want to have the thing. Yeah. I, I have a theory that pretty much all politicians are sociopaths. Now, I can't demonstrate this absolutely, but I think that, uh, I think it's a fair statement. Yeah. It's a, it's a crowd of me. Prove me wrong. Change my mind. Well, the whole article that started this thing was the food rights article in Food Freedom You Sent Me, which I'm going to link to at culinarylibertarian.com slash 49. And I think that, that that was a really great piece, and I enjoyed reading that. But, 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 well, I think I have one last question here. Well, we talked about this a little bit. Was So keeping with the part-time libertarian, is there some way – this is, I guess, a re- rewrite of the previous question, but let's see if there's a different answer. That people can advocate liberty where they live without getting in the muck. And I think we've probably answered that, which is uh, go to social media and find groups of people. And then, for as bad as Facebook is becoming in some areas, finding groups of like-minded people, it's very good for that. Yeah, and it's very good for targeted uh, you know, you can do targeted activism. You can you can reach people. I can go use Facebook ads with my uh, my page. We see you watching Lexington, which is the page that I created to kind of facilitate the surveillance work here in the city. You know, I can take an article and I can use a targeted ad and and plop down five bucks and basically point that uh, article or that post to people in specific zip codes. Uh, that have expressed interest in privacy or in in whatever particular keyword that I want to target it to. So, you know, for all of its faults, there are some some positives that you can use with the with the whole social media thing. Um, you know, you just have to recognize you have to have alternative plans. You know, recognizing that it may not always be there for you, but uh, we we can definitely use it while it's there. And yeah, like you said, it's, it's finding those like-minded people and being willing to get out and, and do something. I mean, we all like to sit behind a keyboard and complain. Um, it takes a little bit of work to actually do activism, but it doesn't take nearly as much as you would think, you know, you don't have to be some type of, of expert in, in anything. You just have to be willing to, um, do some networking and, you know, start pestering your city council members. Well, the expertise comes. The first thing I think you need is the passion to fix the problem. Yep, absolutely. All right, you gave us the link before, but go ahead and if you would again, and maybe there's some more, how can people find your work or follow you or do both of those things? TenthAmendmentCenter.com. Tenth is spelled out. That's where you will find all things Tenth Amendment Center. If you go to that page and go to the blog, uh, you'll find new articles every day on various uh, things that we're covering, various issues that we're working on. It, there's a search box. So if you want to find out what we're doing, you can like search raw milk and you can see uh, different states that have had raw milk bills proposed. You can put food sovereignty. So you can actually search for some of those issues that you're interested in and actually get a flavor for what we're doing uh, with uh, that particular work. So that would be the first place I would advise to go. Uh, I have my own website, michaelmeharry.com, and uh, my podcast is there. I have a uh, section there called Constitution 101, which uh, goes over various clauses of the Constitution and explains the original understanding, the original meaning. And I'm actually in the final process of finishing up a book that will be an expanded uh, treatment of that subject. So, 22 chapters of constitutional originalism. Well, 
I'll be releasing hopefully in the next, I'm not going to, I'm not going to put a time on it, but soon. Um, Congratulations. I didn't know about that. That's awesome. Yeah. Working on that. So that's, that's my website. If you are a uh, Christian and you're interested in Christianity and libertarianism, particularly voluntarism, uh, you can go to godarchy.org. That's the, that's my little side project. And uh, there you will find a lot more of, of my kind of philosophical underpinnings of, of how I come at things. So, And uh, you're, I know you're on a couple of podcasts. Can they find your podcasts through michaelmaharry.com? Yes, I have uh, my Thoughts from a Hairy Head, which is uh, Constitution and Political Decentralization, is there at that website. I have a, a Godarchy podcast that is at godarchy.org. And if you're interested in economics, in uh, financial markets, particularly as they relate to the gold and silver markets, you can go to shiftgold.com slash news. And I uh, do a podcast there every Friday called the Friday Gold Wrap, which is uh, economic stuff. So I stay pretty busy. I think so. Well, I'm glad we found time today to do this. Always enjoy it. Always appreciate being able to being able to flesh out. This was fun. We got we got to get into some more deep uh, deep ideas that you normally don't get to do on uh, a lot of interview platforms. So I appreciate. Well, that. it's been my pleasure. I'm glad you agreed to that. And I told you earlier that my longest one was about an hour and a half. I think we're I think we're dancing right we're up close. on that. We are close. close. Once I add all the intro and outro stuff, we might uh, we might have we might have a winner. Woo! Yeah. Well, nobody's ever going to accuse me of not being able to talk. So, <laughs> well, least of all me. So, or yeah. Bolden. So, anyway. Right. Well, right. thank you so much. So let's see. Well, it's a good good afternoon time for you in Kentucky. You're probably getting nice and pretty over there. So thanks again, and I will be talking to you soon. All right. Appreciate all right, it. Bye bye. All right, folks. That's going to do it. It is true that libertarians read a lot. Of course, not everyone has time to sit and read books. With the courses from Liberty Classroom, you can fill in the gaps of, or completely rewrite, the history, politics, and economics you were taught in school. Use my affiliate link, culinarylibertarian.com slash biteback, and bite back against the failed education from the state. Notable historians and economists such as Brian McClanahan, Kevin Goodsman, Tom Woods, Bob Murphy, and Jeffrey Herbner are among some of the professors who have created over 20 courses you can listen to in the car, on the commute, or while cooking dinner. Bite back with real history and economics and smash the arguments of your friends. Call libertarian.com slash bite back. Have a good week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com. Although we were all laughing at him because we thought that uh, the NSA finally got to him or something. Well, you never know. <laughs> yeah, sadly, that's true. It's only a matter of time. <laughs> yeah, well, every, well, you know, it, it's hard. Well, it's difficult not to come to the. I'm not sure it's actually it was Keynes who said it on the long enough timeline. We're all dead. Right. Yeah. And the uh, the zero hedge. But you know, there's 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 some activity between 
then and now. And I suppose the activity between then and now, well, it does have some value. True, true enough. <laughs> I would, well, I would like to think, wouldn't we all? Right. That's why we keep on <clears throat> keeping on, right? Uh, I think so. I don't know. It's, it's a curious thing. All right. So, what's your time budget? Whatever. Oh, all right. Well, we shouldn't be more than an hour, really. It depends on how much we like to gab. And, uh, well, between the two of us, I think that's a lot. But yeah, <laughs> I was going to say that, that that might not bode well. But well, the it. the longest one was over an hour and a half with Kyle Mamonas because he just whether or not you're into what he has to say, he's very well informed in his field of sugar and fat and nutrition. Right. And it's, it's just, I didn't want to stop him talking. <laughs> it's just, it was so much amazing information. It's like, I didn't want to cut this guy off. Yeah. Cause I was getting something out of it. So <clears throat> anyway, uh, good. So let me just take a second here. You know, how this, I'm going to do all the introductory and post crap later. Right. We'll take a second here. I'll say uh, hello, and we'll start rolling here. Sounds good. Uh, and uh, so, uh, never mind. Uh, <clears throat> big big breath. Hello, Mike. Thank you for joining me today on the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. 